0: Doing the research for that scared me even more. Like there, We actually had a, a good heritage that I inherited from my grandparents of biblical literacy that I just don't see anywhere, and I don't see any inclination or teaching practices or habits of the church that will ever again get us back to where my grandparents were.
1: Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers.
2: Welcome to The Conversation. Hey everybody, I'm Ken Keithley. In today's episode, we'll talk with Dr. Drew Johnson about the crisis of biblical illiteracy. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. Uh, In today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about AI, artificial intelligence.
3: The godfather of AI quit Google, according to a recent Axios report. And he's joined a growing chorus of experts warning that the rush to artificial intelligence could lead to disaster. Dr. Keithley, what are the concerns, and should we be worried? Well, I think that it did get everyone's attention. His name was Jeffrey
2: Hinton. He is a top machine learning pioneer. When he quit Google for the purpose of opposing AI as it is now just to be unleashed on the public. I think it did get a lot of people's attention. Now, they're not worried about Skynet. They're not worried about the Terminator taking over. That's, that's not what we're talking about. But whenever they point out areas in which it could impact us, it, it, you, it, it becomes clearer what their concerns are. Um, and what are their concerns? Well, Mike Allen, has, as we've already mentioned in the Access article, he, he delineates about four or five and they are serious. The first is simply cyber attacks. Uh, Think about all the the ransomware and malware and computer viruses that there are out there. Now, um, imagine all of that kicked up on steroids, uh, where suddenly these malicious software programs are able to do exponentially uh, more damage. Not only that, think how you allow your smartphone to select the strong password for you. And it's something that's about 16 letters long. Humanly speaking, and even with the best computers today, in order to crack that password just by random work, uh, you know, even the best computers, supercomputers, it takes years and years and years. So they're not gonna, your phone's safe Uh, with AI. Those really difficult passwords suddenly are solvable in a matter of minutes maybe even quicker. So this means everyone's uh, uh, phone, everyone's, uh, and it's not such a big deal on my phone and your phone, but whenever we think about national security, uh, the government databases and things of that nature, suddenly cyber attacks go up to 11. The Second thing is scams and fakes. We've all received the email from the Nigerian prince telling us that if we'll just send him uh, our banking account information, he will send us millions of dollars. Uh, everybody has, has received that. Now, imagine getting a phone call from your daughter saying that her car has broken down and she needs you to wire $2,000 to wherever it is, to the, the car shop, because they're only gonna take cash and she needs help. Uh, then you find out later that well, your daughter, she's at her home. So who was that talking to you? Well, what they're able to do now is just like listening to this podcast. uh, AI can now learn my voice or anyone else's voice that's been recorded. And when a person speaks, what comes through the phone will sound just like that person. There's already movie stars selling their voice to where they will never have to do a commercial or a voiceover for a cartoon or anything like that again, uh, because the AI will always be able to mimic exactly what they sound like. And so the level of scams, the level of deep fakes, just imagine what that's going to do in terms of a political campaign whenever you see a, where your favorite candidate, here's a video of him doing something terrible and everybody is scandalized. And you can't tell that it's a fake because it's done so very well. This is going
3: to end poorly.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. This is, and, and it gets worse. Uh, I mean, this isn't everything. Uh, think about surveillance. How anyone who's in a public event, whether it's a ball game or a concert or really in a downtown street, The typical person uh, doesn't realize, but your picture is taken no less than 13 times a day uh, whenever you walk into Walmart, whenever you get gasoline at the gas pump. Of course, obviously, when you're at the ATM machine, you realize that. But stores, businesses, uh, streets. Uh, Now, imagine an AI connected to that that is able to do facial recognition And so they're able to know exactly where you are at any given time of the day. And in an open democracy, that's concerning enough. But what if you're in a totalitarian society like China or, or somewhere like that? You could see that the 1984 scenario, Big Brother, uh, in fact, that's that's the the, the, the fifth one. What are strongmen going to do? We might have laws that will, will, would prohibit that kind of surveillance. We can we can do that here in a democracy. What about countries in which uh, there are authoritarian governments? Here's the thing: if the software is available, somebody's going to use it. What many of those who are involved in the industry are trying to avoid is the disaster that social media has been to our culture and society for the last 10 years. When social media was uh, presented to us in the early 2000s, I mean, it's hard to to remember this, but Facebook is, is not even 20 years old hardly yet. And yet whenever it was presented to us, this is going to be a wonderful tool that's going to promote democracy, promote openness and better information and this is just going to improve our political discourse and our social integration. I don't even know why we call it social media anymore because it's the most antisocial thing that, that's, that can happen to us. It, it's, been, it's been toxic. Uh, and I, what they're wanting is to make sure that something like that doesn't happen again. And so, like I said, we're not worried about some supercomputer making us slaves. What we're worried about is bad people doing bad things with an amazing technology. Will we ever again bother with scripture?
1: That's a great question, Dr. Keithley. And to help us answer that today is Dr. Drew Johnson. He posed this very question, will we ever again bother with scripture? At our recent Exploring Personhood Conference here at Southeastern, we're delighted to have him on our podcast today. Dr. Johnson is full professor, just as recently, full professor of biblical and theological studies at the King's College in New York City, as well as director of the Center for Hebraic Thought, the editor of the Rutledge IPBC monograph series, host of the Biblical Mind podcast, a whole bunch of really other awesome stuff, including co-host of the On Script podcast. And before all of this, he loves to remind people he was a high school dropout, a skinhead, a punk rock drummer, a combat veteran, IT supervisor, and pastor, and now he plays around in the Hebrew Bible, Uh, all these other kinds of things that he hopes his children will never do. Uh, Drew Johnson, thank you for being with us today, brother.
0: It's an honor and a privilege. Thank
2: you. Uh, Let's go back to your lecture title, Will We Ever Again Bother With Scripture?, it's a provocative question. Boy, it's a clickbait if there ever was
0: one. I, I admire it. What inspired the question? I was asked to do a reaction piece or a response piece to something on biblical law, and I had a similar title for it. I was like, you know, it was somebody who had written something on biblical law. It was really a great piece. And, and so I just said, look, I'm not going to respond to this piece. This is a great piece. I just said amen to the whole thing. But there's a bigger problem here nobody cares about biblical law. Uh, Nobody's thinking about biblical law. Christians are not reading biblical law and puzzling through it like, you know, the Protestant reformers were or the British parliamentarians were. So uh, when I was thinking about what to do for this conference, you know, this has just been a burning and burdening uh, issue for me that I'm seeing it more and more because I get 18 year olds off the streets from across the country, straight out of youth groups, and they don't seem to be engaging scripture at all, or if they are, they have very bizarre rituals of scripture engagement that I, I are not doing the work for them that they need to be doing. So you say it's provocative, but it is actually a genuine question in my heart. Me and Selena Durga and my colleague here at the Center for Hebraic Thought, we just published an article with Christianity Today called, is it time to quit quiet time or something like that? But it was looking at the practice of quiet time through history and American history, and kind of how it's used today, and how it might be a distorted practice for some people—not for all, of course—and doing the research for that scared me even more. Like there, we actually had a, a good heritage that I inherited from my grandparents of biblical literacy that I just don't see anywhere, and I don't see any inclination or teaching practices or habits of the church that will ever again get us back to where my grandparents were. Now it might be a little romantic to think that we should be there, mm-hmm. um, but something has to be better than what we have right now.
2: Well, what is wrong with the way most Christians are interacting with the Bible?
0: Yeah, and I want to be careful, and I don't want to say it's wrong the way they're interacting with it. I'm saying it can be wrong depending on the the context. It can be poorly formative. So I used to be a little bit shocked to find out that students would say, well, my daily Bible reading, I'd say, oh, what did you read today? And they'd say, well, Romans nine one." And I'd say, oh, like Romans 9 or Romans 9 through 12. No, no, the first verse, Romans 9, 1, right? Um, uh, and I'd say, oh, okay, what, what did you do with it? Well, then I I prayed for God to show me what he wants to teach me today through this verse. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting approach. <laughs> I'm like, what does Paul say in Romans 10 or Romans 11, by the way? And they're like, I have no idea, you know? And so I thought, well, this this is like watching a movie one frame at a time. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, uh, we called it microdosing in our article, but I was trying to think of any conceivable way in which you could come to understand what Paul was talking about, what the gospel is, what the history of Israel is, and how we fit into it, if this is your main practice of engaging scripture. And so it's not only that they're, they are engaging scripture every day, even, you know, a paragraph or, you know, two paragraphs of scripture or a chapter, they're doing this but they have no idea how to put the whole framework together. And so they come into my class having read scripture every day of their life and meditated upon it supposedly. Um, and they don't understand basic concepts like salvation or justice, or you know they're shocked by very basic notions uh, in scripture when we go over them. So this all led me to believe something is wrong with this practice uh, in, in these people's hands. And as we talk about in this article coming out, you Know my depression era parishioners actually do the same practice, they'll read a paragraph or just a little bit, but they knew what happened before that paragraph. They, you know, they know what the whole letter of Romans says and they know how to contextualize uh, that little bit. And so it seems like a very different practice for them, and it which achieves very different uh, purposes for those people than it does for my students.
2: So, whenever you spoke uh, here at Southeastern earlier in the year, and you did a great job, by the way, thank you. You talk about Bible familiarity, mm-hmm. and then you talk about biblical literacy, and even that should lead to what you call Bible fluency, and you might want to just elaborate on what those all mean, what or what you meant by each of those uh, expressions, but one of the things you said, you said, we have a, a pigeon understanding of Scripture, uh, which we have creolized, unpack that. That was it. That was such a provocative way of saying it. I thought it was great.
0: I will also say this illustration works for some people and not for others. So if it doesn't fully work, that's okay. Um, But yeah, by Bible literacy, I just mean you kind of know what's in scripture, like the breadth of it, and you know how things work. You know how Psalms work as as opposed to legal reasoning in the Torah versus the Gospels. Um, and then Bible fluency is extending the kind of the thinking of Scripture into topics that the Bible doesn't talk about. So like abortion, incarceration, things, things that it doesn't directly address that you can extend its thinking into those things, like a language. Um, but I actually stole this pigeon and creole uh, analogy. Several people use it, but my colleague uh, Brent Strawn at Duke, he uses this in his book, Is the Old Testament Dying?, And he said, you know, a pigeon understanding is basically, you know, in the marketplace where you just know, you know, if you go to Mexico or Jerusalem, right, the person trying to sell you something, they they might not speak English, but they know enough English to get the deal done, right? So this is very good value, you know, this costs this much, they can't conjugate the verbs, you know, they probably have a vocabulary of 50 to 200 words of functional language for, for mercantile exchange, And then creolization is when you take that level of knowledge of a language and you actually turn it into a new language, you you dialectalize it, right? And so if you think about Jamaican patois or French creole, those are actually taking a pigeon knowledge of French and making them into an entire language subset. And Brent makes this simple point. He says, like, look, most Americans understanding of the Old Testament, and as I said in the conference, whatever is true of the Old Testament is true 10 years later of the New Testament, and we're about 10 years later now, which I think this is still true, is that they have kind of a pigeon understanding. They know a few stories. They don't really know how to conjugate the verbs of these stories. They don't really know how these stories work. So, you you know, anybody can show them a shocking, horrific story from Genesis or from Judges. And they're like, I don't, why is this in the Bible? I don't understand how to use this, right? And that's a problem. But here's where he really, you know, puts his finger on the, the pulse of the real problem is. And then they build their theology, they creolize, right? They take their theology from their pigeon understanding of Scripture. And so they have a few flashpoints in Scripture that they know are important. And that's their only guiding waypoints and uh, constructing their theology. And so they really don't know what to do with the rest of Scripture, which means they really don't know what Scripture is teaching. They're just pulling together a theology based on this fractionalized understanding, which to some extent we're all doing, right? Where I mean, I have a fractionalized understanding of the Old Testament that I lean on my other Old Testament and New Testament scholars to help fill in places that I don't understand as well or I've never, I haven't never, have thought through as well. But this seems to be like a very dangerous version of that same game.
1: I want to pick up on your point of you said your sort of Depression-era folks had a, had a broader understanding and awareness of the whole of Scripture, the whole of the Book of Romans. And so when they took a single verse or a couple of verses— we could assume a little bit more then, because they seem seems to have better context. I want to I want to challenge that in a little bit of a provocative way to hear you respond here, because given how much how many resources we have now, I mean, we can go endless numbers of podcasts, endless numbers of audio versions of the Bible, endless numbers of YouTube videos, so many resources we could name, um, how is it even possible that we would have a less broad understanding and awareness of the Bible, given how many resources that we have at our disposal, especially compared to 100 years ago?
0: Uh, well, there's a long answer to that question, uh, but uh, I, I used the give me phrase... The, give me the pigeon answer to that question. Yeah. <laughs> I use the phrase, we're starving in the middle of a supermarket, right? Uh, like we're emaciated in the middle of a supermarket. Mm. But uh, yeah, part of the problem is you have to you have to have the framework to use those tools as well. Um, so one thing we know about uh, reading comprehension, all of these studies in the last 25 years on the, the neurobiology of reading comprehension is basic familiarity with a text before you ever read it improves your comprehension of the text that you're reading, right? So if you're stumbling, it's like, I heard, I'm not going to name who it is, but a pretty famous theologian at Cambridge once gave a talk where he used seven Russian novels I'd never heard of as his primary illustrations for his talk. I hung with him for the first Russian novel I'd never heard with. The second one, I'm like, okay, uh, we're there. The third one, I was like, I checked out. I was just like, I can't suspend all of this stuff I've never heard of before in my mm-hmm. head and, and hang it there. So that that familiarity piece plays a role in even using the tools um, also, you know, I would say you know we're we're post postmodern, we're in this what I would call or what some people have called hypermodernism, where um, the, the issue isn't what's true or who has the right to say what's true, what the master narratives are. The issue now is that we're in a morass of data, uh, and we're just looking for faithful guides to kind of guide us through the morass of data and point out what's important. So it's not surprising that someone like Jordan Peterson, you know, or Ben Shapiro becomes a very popular figure among certain groups, because they're the ones who can guide you through the morass uh, of data as just kind of a conventional example. Um, But think of it this way as well. I don't know if you've ever done this on Netflix, where you're like, I have two hours free, like every once in a while, when that happens, you're like, I have two hours to do nothing, whatever I want to do. You know, maybe the kids and the, and the spouse have all left the house and you're like, here we go. And you put on Netflix and you spend an hour trying to find, you know, scrolling through trying to find right. something to watch. Right? right. So there really is this kind of engagement and motivation. And the, I, I use the term morass of information intentionally because it really is more than just a glut of data. It actually becomes overwhelming to the point that you, you don't know what to do with the, the tools that are in front of you. So best case scenario, you're getting on Bible Project and watching a couple of videos about narrative and how to how to use it. But you're not actually practicing the skill of analyzing narrative uh, with them unless you're listening to their long form podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it really is. It's not that people don't want to and not that they're not interested in it. It's, it's They're almost anesthetized from the actual formative practice by having too much in front of them.
2: Yeah, that that's a great illustration. In the evening, Penny can be reading a book, and I'm I'm scrolling. I don't do Netflix. I've I, that's Netflix programs are too long. I am now <laughs> scrolling on my smart TV YouTube videos, mm. and I'm just watching one clip of this comedian, one clip of that news thing, one clip of and and finally she says, "What in the world are you doing?" you know, and I'll say, well, I'm putting together my own variety show, uh, you know, and, and <laughs> because I'm just overwhelmed with, as you say, we're, we're swimming in a sea of data, which, you know, we have a lot of pastors and uh, those who are working in churches listening to this podcast. And I suspect that many of them are shaking their heads. Yes. As we are talking about this and then, um, I, I suspect the next thing they're thinking is, okay, you've cursed the darkness. Now, what is the candle of light? Right. Uh, what would you recommend? What 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 would be a way or ways in which they could move forward to to help their people to 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 be more than what we're
0: talking about? As somebody who is a pastor for eight years, I want to advisedly give some advice, but it's advised because I realize that if you really shake up people's Bible engagement habits, some people are going to get very touchy about that, right? And so, you know, you gotta, you got to be prepared to get the emails or the talking to, like, this is not the way we've done it before. But I do, you know, some basic things. Scripture, most of it was written to be heard, not to be read with the eye. So if your people are not engaging scripture with their ears, if, if, you know, the natural habitat of scripture is in the ear canal, not on, on our eyes. So if there's no engagement through the aural, the ear at all, that seems a little bit off. Um, it's not wrong, but it seems like that would be an easy one. And also when you talk about engaging through the ear, now you can talk about community, right? Like I I was listening to scripture on mp3s of the book of judges because that's a pretty riveting one this morning so that's a great that's personal practice right but man as soon as you have somebody reading out loud or you have a dramatic audio bible or something like that people in a room you can all listen to it together and then you can talk about it right scripture is written to be read and heard in community it's not written to be read in, in isolation so Even with the daily devotional, I'm glad that we have the ability. I'm glad I have the ability to listen to scripture on my own. That's great. It it enhances my understanding. I'm glad I can read it on my own. I'm glad I have it in a book that I can carry around in my back pocket if I want. But we have to be mindful that most Christians and Jews throughout history never had such access to scripture Mm -hmm. and yet had fully formed Christian lives. Right. Um, And so I'm a little wary of people who want to say, if you push this daily reading or certain types of daily reading, I call that devotional reading or that kind of quiet time reading that develops from the Puritans into this wonky form that we got today. You know, I've had people that basically they couldn't imagine what a good mature Christian life was like unless you're doing that thing. And then I have to say to them, well, then you can't imagine most Christians lives throughout history. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's a good point, Drew. So just to pick up on that, and I'll confess even my own temptations as a pastor, I hear people say, you know, I'm not good at just sitting down and reading, but I listen to my Bible on the way to work, or I listen to it here and there. And, and there's a part of me that wants to almost almost correct them or chastise them for that. And you're saying, no, 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 that that actually is the most common uh, experience and practice of Christians throughout the centuries.
0: Yeah, and and also I tell my students, you know, listen to Scripture, but also that I do make them read it and annotate it, like because there is something about that physical interaction with the paper. By the way, even Gen Z, the kids today they still by a great majority prefer paper bibles and, yep. and paper books yep. so don't don't buy into the lie that they all want it on digital they actually don't when you ask them and they uh they enjoy my i, I make my students i actually buy for them annota- like bibles with uh journaling on the side and make them annotate it and take pictures so this is not you know in some ways um it can sound like i'm saying ditch daily reading ditch these you know ditch your own personal Bible time. And I'm saying, no, no, I don't think you need to tell most evangelicals that they should be engaging scripture regularly. Like they've heard that message pretty loudly and clearly over the last century. Uh, so I, I'm just saying, swing the pendulum back the other little way, thinking about community reading and then, and then community reading isn't community reading unless you also include at the end of it. Now, what did you hear? What, mm. you know, what did the apostle, what did you hear the apostle Paul say there? how it, how do you know that that's what he said what what kinds of things was he repeating what was he emphasizing what kind of techniques was he using to nail down this is the thing he wanted you to hear
1: and to be clear on that i not not trying to be coy here but that's to ask that question what did you hear is very different than the sort of what does this mean to you kind of stuff yeah. when you say <laughs> what did you hear can you just drill down on that for for just a minute
0: Yeah. So what I do with my students and parishioners is I really try to get them in tune with what the text is saying and and valuing what the text says and how it says it. So when I say, what did you hear? And some people will hear that question as like, oh, now I get to give my opinion or how I respond to that. And I'll say, can you put that in the language of the text? Like, can you just phrase what you said in the language of the text that we just heard or in the language of 1 Corinthians that we just heard? Like, what are the actual terms he uses? What are the turns of phrases? What are the literary devices? He could have said anything he wanted, any way he wanted. He chose to say it this way. So let's think about that. And what I'm basically doing is forcing them back to the object that we're encountering, the voice of God through the object of scripture.
2: One of the questions that we generally ask at the end of our podcast this year is how our conversation relates to spiritual formation, hmm. but you really have been addressing that for the yeah. last uh, five. I hope ten so. Minutes. Yes, <laughs> yes. So put a cherry on top of the uh, yeah. uh, on top of the the Sunday there.
0: What? How would you how would you
2: capstone this conversation about
0: spiritual formation? So this is, I think, the lesser appreciated version of engaging scripture. Which I just said it, but let me say it a different way: is really valuing the way the biblical authors present what they want to say. So thank goodness, John's gospel, he just says it outright. He says, you know, I could have said many things, but I chose these things in this way, uh, so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, right? Um, In that statement, I think you should just put in front of every, every book of the Bible. They could have chosen many ways, but they chose this way to say it. You might've liked it some other way and valuing like, why do they give us all these genealogies? Why do they uh, give us all this legal reasoning? Why do they why do they say the most important things in poetry of all things, right? Uh, like wouldn't you just say it directly instead of using poetry? And what we're doing is re and I, I consider the spiritual formation is we're reordering our value system of a text that I can dominate, you know, because I think a lot of people say like, yeah, text, I'm going to try and understand it. and by understand it, I mean, It's going to be mine. I'm going to understand it and I'll know what it says. And then I can use that. I can weaponize that. I'm not everybody thinks that way, but some people do. And I'm saying, no, 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 let it be a voice that constantly guides you and that you have to submit to, uh, even in the way that it instructs. And I'll give one example. Um, I was at a speaking at a conference for Orthodox Jews this weekend. It's New York city. So that's not hard to pull together. Um, and we were talking about constitutionalism and how the Bible has influenced America and its ideas of politics. And um, and I just noticed that a lot of people were more on the kind of defensive of the Bible and politics in America, a little more rah, rah, rah. I said, look, it's not just that the Bible is a is talking about politics and how we should think about the political life and governance and all those things. Um, but the way that it tells the story, you know, someone said you can tell a lot about a nation by listening to how it talks about itself. I said, yes, take that to the Bible. How does the nation of Israel talk about itself? It front loads all the worst information about itself. It portrays itself as unfaithful and doofuses who are stumbling around, not listening to God. And the same thing in the gospel. If the gospels have any roots in the, apost- the apostles' voices, uh, Mark's gospel, you know, supposedly comes from Peter. He is not speaking highly of himself there. He's portraying himself in the worst possible light uh, that gives it a very sharp, but God edge to it, right? But God worked through these people and in these ways uh, or despite these people and sometimes. So that value proposition even goes down to the method in which it's displaying what God wants us to hear, inclusive of the words and the, the metaphors and everything else. Sorry that was a little uh it was a little mixed but uh I, I I take the whole shebang all the way down. I'm very conservative on these things.
1: That's good. Drew how can people follow your work?
0: Well, I have the standard narcissism hole at drewjohnson.com. <laughs> D-R-U, <laughs> johnson.com. I don't really post stuff there though. Uh but uh, the the work that I'm more excited about is the work of the Center for Hebraic Thought, which is hebraicthought.org or but we have the Kind of the church side for the layperson, we have articles, podcasts, and videos at biblicalmind.org, um, where we Excellent. kind of think about how the biblical authors think about things.
2: Dr. Johnson, thank you for being with us today. Really is a privilege.
3: And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. Dr. Keithley, what's on your bookshelf right now? Well, it's a book that I had read a couple of years ago,
2: and I returned to it because I was, in my preaching, dealing with transgenderism. So I reread Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I really can't recommend this book too highly in terms of someone wants to understand uh, where we're at, how we got here. And where we're going the whole notion that somehow that those who are suffering from gender dysphoria uh, that is they're struggling with their sexual identity someone who would say i am a, a woman trapped in a man's body the fact that that has been normalized in our culture now there's always been those who have suffered with gender dysphoria and and we've always understood that th- that when someone has uh, a, a disorder of this nature, that they need professional help, and, and they ought to get it. And so they're to be treated with, with sensitivity and compassion. The, what is very strange today is that it has been normalized, not only normalized, but affirmed and celebrated. You got to ask yourself, what kind of worldview can actually see this not simply as something that we ought to allow, but something that we ought to endorse. And in fact, we have parents today telling their children that are three, four, and five years old, you choose whether you're a boy or a girl. Now, I have to admit that when the year 2000 rolled around, I didn't have that on my bingo card. (laughs) And so what Truman does so very well is he explains the worldview that has created such a, a paradigm in which this seems logical. Because I think for most of our listeners, the, the very idea is, is, is very bizarre. What he points out is, is that transgenderism has since, especially the 1990s, has been associated with the gay and lesbian push for legitimacy. And so it's the LBGTQ plus. But it really doesn't fit well, because w- one of the things that gay and lesbians acknowledge is that there are there's male and they're female. It isn't that they identify as something else, they're attracted. In other words, a woman will say, I'm attracted to another woman rather than a, a man. Well, in order to say that, you're acknowledging that there, it is binary. There, there, there are men and there are women. And my orientation is towards whatever it is. With transgenderism, they say, oh, that's a social construct. That's out the window. And so it has only been a political marriage of convenience that they all saw themselves as having a common adversary, which is uh, heterosexual uh, normativity, for towards heterosexual uh, relationships and they all saw that as the the common adversary to be pushed against now that that has in a sense since they have won that battle which is a disturbing thing to say now we're beginning to see fractures within where those who identify as feminist find themselves having to push back against transgenderism Because girls and girls' sports that they have promoted for decades, wanting to have greater equality and greater opportunity for girls in sports, suddenly find out that here are those males who identify as females taking over the particular sports. And what does that do to the girls who have worked so very hard? Uh, in in that respect,ive field. So, if one wants to understand that that whole paradigm, I can't recommend too highly Carl Truman's book. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl R. Truman.
3: And listeners, if you uh, want to know more about Carl Truman, we had a conversation with him back in season two. Scroll back to the fall of 2021, I guess it was, and you can find our conversation with Carl Truman there as well. Thank you for that book recommendation, Dr. Keithley. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five-star rating, brief review on your favorite podcast platform of choice, and then share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.